0: Welcome to the Archimedes podcast, the evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, where every month we bring you some evidence-based tidbits and some cases that are based on real clinical practice. Now, we also have, in most of these, a little section about how to think about practicing evidence-based medicine. And at the moment, we're recording in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic of 2020. That has raised some very interesting questions. Back in the early part of March, there was a flurry of interest about non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen and the like, and the new coronavirus and whether this made the disease worse or not. At the time, there was a rapid review of what little evidence was out there, and came to the conclusion that there wasn't evidence of a clear link between severe COVID-19 disease and the use of non-steroidals, but, but there wasn't a lot of evidence for anything actually. Now. When there is that situation, not much data of something bad happening, we are left asking the question of ourselves, is it that whatever the super medicine is that we're talking about, is it that it doesn't cause the bad thing or is it just that we haven't seen it yet? The more data we collect, clearly, the more sure we can be of the answer. And it reflects back into the idea about how do you prove a negative, which is often tricky to deal with now as clinicians we tend to make a decision in a way of thinking that can be a bit obscure to normal people. In general, we take a stance which is to balance the likely truth of the claim, um, looking at the validity, the elements of it which have been shown in other areas or, or the similar sorts of situations, the possible severity of the bad thing is meant to cause, and the known benefit of using that treatment compared to any alternatives that are around. Now, in this instance in particular, we know that non are good for pain for, for many people. We've used really quite a lot of them. And in doing so, we haven't really noticed that only those patients who had them were the ones that had COVID-19 severe disease. We also know that other claims of nonsteroidals making disease worse largely seem to have been related to a confounding, and that is the co-occurrence of the real bad cause. So, for instance, maybe a uh, severity of soft tissue uh, or skin infection and the addition of ibuprofen on top of the rest of the way that that kid was being looked after. Importantly, we do know that paracetamol is a good alternative to non-steroidals in a sort of virally type illness. Um, And so throwing all that together, the advice emerged fairly sensibly when you put those bits in. That if you wanted to give a sort of antipyretic mild analgesic to someone that might be having the new coronavirus, use paracetamol, not a non-steroidal like ibuprofen. The other bit that's in there that might not be obvious to normal people is that we know that paracetamol and non have hugely different mechanisms of action. That, that At a pharmacological level, they are stunningly different drugs, even though when you give them to small children, they seem to have the same magic effect in milliseconds. And if we're communicating these ideas out to the general public, then it's worth also talking about those things which we consider to be almost too obvious to state, so that the whole of the decision-making process is out there on display. The way that this works is then balanced somewhat. For patients who are taking regular non-steroidals though, well, for them, the balance can be considered to fall differently. If there is an alternative medicine, but, but very little evidence that this one actually causes harm, then probably you should carry on taking the non-steroidal because the benefit that you're getting will outweigh any small or possibly non-existent harm. Again, in communicating with the general public, I think we need to be very clear about our thinking processes. And so what appears to be contradictory can actually be seen to be a different decision because of different elements going into it. Evidence-based approaches and evidence-based thinking can be used even in pandemics, even in situations where you have to act quickly and think clearly on a minimal evidence. But if we can keep our explanations clear, then as time goes on and evidence emerges and maybe things change, it will be straightforward to explain how things have altered rather than just assuming that it was always wrong all along. Now, the first of our clinical queries this month is a really interesting one, asking the question, should parents be present at the resuscitation of their child? The scenario is a sadly familiar one, you're in an emergency department and a one-year-old is brought in, undergoing full CPR by the paramedics and the paediatric team is gathered around. A few minutes later the parents arrived and are brought into the room but you notice how distressed and uncertain it is and really questioning afterwards whether it was the right thing to have the parents there or whether it would be better for them to have been in a quiet room elsewhere and spoken to afterwards. The report uh, goes on to look for evidence to try to answer this, and this is clearly going to be qualitative data. A wide search brought 21 possible things back in, of which 7 appeared to be right, uh, but 3 included in the end because the other papers were already included within a systematic review. And the systematic review took qualitative studies and drew them together and this is something that we don't often see in Archimedes but is present. Uh, The idea of evidence synthesis should not be limited to just quantitative information and qualitative stuff is important as well. The review had six papers as I say, four of them retrospective studies with the families that had been involved in resuscitation, two of them prospective but more based around scenarios than based around actual events. They were in US and Australian populations and they came to three thematic conclusions that that being there, the idea of being present at resuscitation in itself gave a sense of control and understanding and a, a chance for advocacy they improved satisfaction compared to parents that weren't at resuscitation later on and began and enhanced the coping of parents when an adverse outcome occurred at the end of resuscitation which we know is extremely common. The other two papers were surveys of healthcare professionals rather than parents uh, one in the US and one in the French system. The US system showed that the Healthcare professionals in particular were concerned about the legal ramifications of parents being present, and really worried about that. the The French one showed that only around, uh, only around one fifth, seventeen percent of healthcare professionals favoured the family being present in the resuscitation room. Now this is one of those things where the interpretation of the evidence and its understanding is going to be very culturally dependent. Different settings will have different what they think is the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. In the UK setting a lot of that data seems to bring together what we would sort of expect and and in a way support what many of us do. The familial presence at resuscitation Can improve parental satisfaction with care, it probably reduces fear and gives families a sense of control, facilitating coping and acceptance of death if it is an unsuccessful outcome. And the parents that were in these studies would recommend other parents being present, despite the fact that medical professionals feel uneasy about the presence of parents in these situations. If you have the ability to have somebody alongside the parents, then it really should be considered to be evidence-based and appropriate. The second report is another very interesting and common one from Emily Andrews and Amnita Su at the East Lanx Hospitals. It's about an ex-25 weaker who's been ventilated for a long period of time, failed dart, finally got off onto a high frequency nasal cannula, but then over the course of a few weeks there's a creep up of oxygen requirement, diuretics are given, reflux medicines are given, but nothing's really helping. Chest X shows signs of cystic change, areas of atelectasis, develops chronic lung disease quite clearly. And the questions being asked about what if inhaled budesonide had been started early on or what if inhaled budesonide was used now to try to damp down the inflammatory response and maybe ameliorate the chronic lung disease. Well, that team went out and looked through the literature, expansive searches finding 82 that they looked through in some detail and included five individual studies in the end. They chose not to include the Cochrane reviews that had looked at steroid broadly because they were looking mainly at budesonide to see if they could get a nice clear picture with the one steroid. This really included um, two very large RCTs and three smaller ones the large ones being of 860 babies and 570 babies and the small ones being sort of 24 27 70 babies the small ones as i suppose you'd expect did show some promise with quite drastic reductions in uh, oxygenation or chronic lung disease requirement depending on how that they were looked at the larger studies actually came up with with really difficult to interpret results the biggest one shows if you put the combined outcome of death or BPD together you end up with a modest possible reduction of 0.86 the odds ratio for that combined outcome with a confidence interval of 0.75 to 1 so not significant but but sort of hinting but then split about that compound outcome and what you see is that the BPD does indeed drop to about three quarters but the death rate seems to increase to about 1.4 The other large trial, 570 people involved, has a similar sort of picture, dropping the chronic lung disease, but increasing the death. Now, their clinical bottom line is that it might be that steroid inhaled steroid does reduce the BPD, But there is a worry of an increase in death rate which is at current unexplained but certainly means that it can't be recommended as a routine thing. Much debate about whether the timing of the steroid, the dosing of the steroid, how it's given are the things that make a difference and it's worth reading this paper if you're interested to try to understand the complexities of the evidence but the evidence-based approach seems to be at the moment that, that using it is not a great idea, but with fiddling and much, much by way of new studies, we might get some benefit from this in the future. And that's all for this month from the locked down Archimedes in the cave of Archimedesness. Uh, what we would hope to do is hear from you and how you've been addressing the evidence-based questions that you've been having. Please email them in by the usual route, let us know how the podcast is being received, and give us some ideas about what you would like to do next. We hope you are staying safe, washing your hands, and using hand cream afterwards. Take care, and we'll speak to you next month.